I'm a bus driver. Yeah, my work is a checkout. I'm a tube driver. I've been a private pilot for the last four years. I work at a Weatherspoons and Hello, I'm Mark Thomas, and welcome to Keywords, the podcast that talks to key workers about their experiences through COVID 19. Episode 3 Keeping Your Distance. From day one of the COVID-19 pandemic, like every other pandemic before it, our best and only weapon to deal with it is do not catch it. Despite all the advances in science and medicine, a highly transmissible novel virus is exactly what it says it is. Easy to catch and new, so no one knows what to do to stop it, except don't catch it. Stay apart. Socially distance until science catches up. On the 11th of March 2020, the city of Wuhan had been sealed in their homes for 47 days. Italy had gone into lockdown three days before, and the World Health Organization declared a global pandemic. That very same day, the 11th of March, the Cheltenham Gold Cup was held in England, They started cramming quarter of a million people into a grandstand and a paddock to shout at brutalising midgets beating horses and an event run by Matt Hancock's horsey best mate and future test and trace failure, Dido Harding. It would be another 12 days and an avoidable 26,000 deaths before the UK followed Italy into lockdown. You can try and wage an argument for libertarian ideology against a virus, but rather than debate you, it will debilitate and kill you and move on. The question key workers faced was how do they keep the country going and socially distance? Was it possible for them to do their jobs and keep safe? Luke is a postie and starts his day in the sorting office, which is notoriously lacking in space. I've come into work about half six, We'll be sorting in the morning, which is probably where we're most at risk from um, virus infection. I'm in an office of, I think, up to 400 people. At the height, we'd have 90 people off sick, I believe. You know, a huge chunk of our workforce when the pandemic really hit hard. And a fear that it was sort of on everything you touched. The fear of other people and what they might be carrying was a natural virus control measure. Elaine has two part-time jobs, school cleaner and worker in the school kitchens. And each one presented different experiences. Oh, no, there's no room for social distancing. We get changed in a changing room. I would say it's just over like a disabled toilet space. And the cleaning, it was easier to social distance because you were in your own department as such. You know, there's a larger area to, to stay away from people. But in the kitchen, it was really hard to keep any social distancing because you're confined to a small space, so... Most workplaces are not designed for keeping your distance, with the exception, perhaps, of an artillery range. Sky works at McDonald's, and what chances are of avoiding other staff in McDonald's when workers can barely avoid boiling chip fat? People are moving around so much just to give out food to customers. It wasn't exactly, or still isn't, the most safest of environments for COVID. Managers haven't exactly paid attention to it. The amount of times I've admittedly had to, you know, break that socially distance stuff is unlike literally I, I cannot count because this happens so much. Amazon warehouses might be the size of several football pitches, but there are other factors involved in distancing. 
Amazon have a daily performance league table of their employees' work rates. Every day, the bottom three workers get motivational booster chats with managers and pressurised to improve. Here, an anonymous worker suffering with long COVID explains the effect of that pressurising. The aisles are about 25 to 50 metres long. They have six shelves on them with between four to six bins in each segment of the shelving. And they're crammed with items such as watches, phones, everything under the kitchen sink you can name. Sometimes it could be just you, or you could have about another two to three pickers in the same aisle. And then you can get stowers who are stowing items there as well. So we're against the clock there for them type of picking. In some situations, when I was picking, I had people right next to me picking their items or stowing their items. Even though I was asking them, can you move, please? They'll go, no. They were more worried about their rates for picking or stowing than rather than their health. There it is, the cycle of crisis capitalism right there for you. A health crisis creates a boom for Amazon, causing more workers to take shortcuts with their safety. More people become ill. A health crisis develops. You get the picture. Most key workers occupy space that doesn't really lend itself to distance. Patrick works on the London Underground. Got to remember, a lot of these buildings are, are ancient. They were built, God knows when, you know. So um, they're small. Uh, low ceilings. I'm talking about staff areas now, you know. Mm. You know, we put measures in place and, yeah, there is a bit of social distancing, as best as we can do anyway. Key workers were expected to do the best they could. In return, we expect the government to do its best, to be at least a little prepared for a crisis. And they were prepared, really, really badly prepared. In 2016, the government ran Exercise Cygnus, a three-day war game involving nearly a 1,000 ministers, civil servants and officials to test the machinery of government in response to an outbreak of an imaginary virus called swan flu. And we lost. The government lost against an imaginary virus. We lost to something that wasn't there. And this was under Theresa May before posh Trump became PM. He has enough trouble differentiating between fact and fiction at the best of time. How on earth was he going to cope with a real virus? It was going to be like meeting northern voters. Awkward at best. Despite the threat of a pandemic being the number one threat to British security, despite the lessons from Cygnus, despite the warnings, the government did nothing. And nothing quite signalled how badly prepared we were, like the Prime Minister, the Health Secretary and the Chief Medical Officer getting COVID at the same time. When social distancing was the most important weapon we had, the only thing the government sought to distance themselves from was responsibility, which Jack, a teacher, could plainly see. Our schools aren't designed that way. That's why the government sort of said social distancing is possible because it was impossible. And I think the government did that a lot. It was kind of putting the uh, the onus of responsibility entirely on other people, knowing full well that the people couldn't do that. Where possible. The central issue of this pandemic has been what is possible, what is expedient. And as Jack says, some things are impossible. Tarek 
is a firefighter. There will be times you'll be required to work in close proximity to each other as we are we are a team-based uh, profession. If you are working to extract someone from a vehicle, um, you know, even by the sheer nature of using the tools that we use, it requires two people to operate each tool. Now, we, you know, you can hold it on your own um, and use it, but it's very, very difficult to do so. It is a well-known fact that social distance from cabinet ministers is measured not in metres, but barge poles. And in the socially distanced House of Commons chamber, that was pretty much the case. But for Jackie, a carer, it could be measured in millimetres. You could count on one hand, I think, the people that you don't have to actually physically help. We've got a couple of gentlemen who've got schizophrenia and they're absolutely lovely. And then we've got a couple that have got learning disabilities. The rest have all got, you know, dementia or Parkinson's. It was it's impossible to keep any kind of distance. You know, you get you're putting people to bed and getting them out of bed, you take them to the toilet. So you've got to support people and help them to stand up. You've got to put your arms around them. In March 2020, Boris Johnson promised the state would put its arms around every single worker. Fifteen months on and Johnson promises Freedom Day, an end to social distancing and a warning that we may reach 100,000 cases a day in a fortnight's time. And then he says, now it's up to you. Mission accomplished. He has put his arms around every single worker and now it's up to us. He has done his bit. So what has he done? Well, he locked down too late, missed Cobra meetings, didn't take it seriously, caught COVID, defended a test and trace that might as well have put a picture of a COVID protein spike in a copy of The Big Issue with the headline, Have You Seen This Virus? Defended a totally fucking useless minister, then pretended he sacked him, defended a rule-breaking aid shattering the consensus of lockdown, let COVID run rip through care homes, oversaw the worst death rate in Europe, siphoned off 38 billion of public funds in dodgy private contracts, and now, now... It's up to you. In reality, it was always up to us. The protective ring, those arms around every worker, only extended so far, and it was only meant to extend so far, to give the illusion of care. Andy works as a track fitter on the London Underground. I had arguments with, with managers who, who quoted back to me what the government advice was um, because what it said was that you should remain two metres apart where possible. And in your job, what you do, it's not possible. And so they were trying to justify not doing it by saying, it's, you know, in your job, it's just not possible. So you've just got to get on with it. So we had to kind of like have battles with them and say, what it says is we're not possible, not we're easy or convenient. Or I said, so you've got to work out ways. We point out some. This doesn't just end there. You've got to apply some planning to this to make it possible by altering the work or the way we travel to and from site to make it possible. And where it actually really isn't possible, when you've tried everything to keep people apart and you can't because the job needs to be done and you've got to put other, other things in place to mitigate against that. And so we had to sort of educate our managers. In a crisis, leadership has to come from the top. Not only were key workers having to, well, work during a pandemic, they also were having to plan, to manage and protect. Christine is a care home worker. And they, was, and they were sending certain staff over to three or four different houses. And I'm like, do you not understand? 
the infection control that you 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 just he was sending them everywhere, and not everybody obviously drives, so they was using public transport. So unnecessarily, they was not going out, only going out to work when they didn't. Then getting on different buses and going into different houses, it was just basically went against everything that the government was trying to stop. They basically did the bare minimum. They just kept saying we're following the guidance, and um, when they did finally provide a mask, that that one mask was for the whole shift. And I'm like, no, 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 no. It was just a constant battle between managers and and obviously different houses and different people doing different things. Two of the key elements for successful disaster management are planning and flexibility. Not something that seemed in abundance. Unjum, a tube driver, explains. So the first the first thing they they did and they announced, and it was completely bonkers. The first thing they announced was they're going to close down 40 stations. And all of us were just looking at each other, thinking, you know, do they, the whole thing about closing 40 stations is, is a contingency plan they have in place whenever we go out on strike. So to try and keep a service running uh, and show that the strike's uh, failing or whatever, they, they shut down 40 stations and they try to redirect resources to keep other main stations open. Of course, what we were dealing with was with a virus and not uh, not picket lines. And closing 40 stations at that point, all it did was uh, reduce the number of stations in which passengers go to and increasing the um, increasing the crowds at those locations. Really, what they're doing is they're, they're running the whole system on the wing and the prayer. And basically, we're the ones who are doing the praying and they're the ones who are doing the winging. And so it was left to key workers to take health and safety into their own hands because they had to. No one else was doing it. They knew what the problems were and they had a vested interest in solving them. Phil is a tube driver on London Underground. So we made a number of demands to, to the company and then demands were we stop handling cash and turn the cash facility off on the ticket machines. We don't have as many people out because it's not busy. So we work um, from behind the glass. We want at least one gate on entry and exit open so people can just walk through. We don't, we're not policing it. The, the company said, well, we can't do that. And it sort of happened anyway. Stations just went, yeah, do you know what? We're leaving our gates open and we're not having anyone on the gate line. And as this spreads on WhatsApp, everyone just started doing it. Rather than take the approach of where possible... Chris, the bin man from Glasgow and the Union, took the approach of trying to do as much as they could. You can only minimise the risk. You can't take it away. But there is going to be probably 80% of the time that you're not going to be able to, to, to get the social distancing rules. So what we did was, as the Union, we used mini buses. So it's only a driver and one allowed in the, the larger RCV vehicles, but it's two metres apart. And the rest of the crew follow in a, a minibus kind of thing, again, two metres apart. Of all the transport workers, it was clear that bus and coach drivers were amongst the worst hit by COVID-19. It was a deadly combination of a high percentage of black and Asian workers who were more susceptible to COVID-19, workers living in areas of low income and higher population densities, and constant exposure to the public. Mo is a bus driver and was well aware of these facts. So when I come home, I'd put my jacket in the black bag and my shirt, take it off in the, in the front door and then go upstairs and, and, you know, put my trousers and everything in there, have a shower immediately and then wash those clothes separately every morning or every night. 
managing myself in the house, I would sleep in another room. I think many, like many others, bus workers, we've all had that that anxiety and driving the bus. We had that element of fear. What's going to happen? Um, or who's going to be next? Which one of our colleagues is going to die next? Um, and being spat at is quite a common thing in the buses. 60 bus drivers were spat at during the pandemic, right? And we also noticed like our bus drivers were being spat at. Um, and we've got like perspex screen, the salt screen is made out of perspex um, and it's got holes for the driver to speak to the passenger and the cab is not properly sealed. So we started to seal it ourselves as much as we can using cling film and sellotape. For me, the enduring image of this podcast is Mo's description of sealing a bus driver's cab with cling film and sellotape, which seems such a very long way away from the government's protective ring. Caitlin works in a hotel bar and restaurant and the rules around social distancing were left for her to enforce, causing her to feel quite differently about her job. We're not police officers, we're not like doctors, we're not teachers, you know, we're not people that actually do have to tell people what to do. So being in a position now where you have to kind of tell people what to do for your own safety, it's, it's, it's totally different from what you're kind of used to. People come to you for a good time. It's like changing the culture. Of hospitality, I would say it's not it's not about welcoming people in. It's about making everything as safe and sanitary as possible. We, the public, did not help on occasion. In our clamour to escape the home, the tedium of Joe Wicks and Netflix, family Zoom quizzes, the pressure to learn a skill, baking, macrame, bookbinding, or heaven forbid, take up a hobby, a hobby for God's sake, nature's memento mori, the moment of activity without meaning before death. In all that frustration, well, we did go a little odd when we were allowed out, as Jackie, a supermarket worker, testifies. So when they were coming to supermarkets, they were coming in crowds. It was a day out for them. The minute they get in the store, the mask was off. And it was like when you're asking them to keep the two metre distance, a lot of folk can't understand the two metres and saying, what's, what's the difference? Amidst the unhelpful behaviour, there were some standout individual efforts. Tim Martin, CEO of Witherspoons and semi-pro pub ball, claimed there's hardly been any transmission of the virus within pubs. True to the traditions of pub balls, he presented no evidence, claimed it was common sense and wore one of the worst haircuts known to man or wolf. Jess who works in Witherspoons, shares his observations on the dignifying effects of alcohol. After a few drinks, it's quite hard to have such uh, discipline, I guess. So we did have, for the first couple of weeks, quite a lot of people being, well, being chucked out. <laughs> um, after a few drinks, they just don't really want to listen too much. The company supported us quite well, but they've they've had to follow the government's guidelines which has been as vague as possible and there would be a lot of arguments between customers and staff and well everyone actually um the government didn't they they didn't make a decision uh they left it as open-ended as possible so the the company did the same thing it was like um they living in a completely different world to everyone else you could be forgiven for thinking the tories would be fine with distancing since they practice it so very very often you there, get off my land. This is members only. The tenants can put the kids in the Tupperware. All right, I suppose it's really more of an anti-social distancing, but you get the point. 
For the rest of us, social distancing does not come naturally. It was really hard to keep apart. Given that the people making the rules were breaking them with such impunity, perhaps it's little wonder that the rules were bent. Rachel is a teacher. When I asked the kids about, you know, like, oh, how was your weekend? How was your half term? How was your Christmas? Whatever question it is I'm asking, invariably I get an answer that tells me they've, they've breached COVID lockdown rules. Maybe people don't think they've broken the rules. Maybe they just they just kind of extend the rule a little bit to suit their personal circumstances mm. um, and say, oh, well, you know, it's only this one thing. It'll be OK kind of thing. You know, it's, I don't think they're going out and about on purpose flouting every single rule they can. I think they've just bent the rules a bit to suit themselves. And I think for a lot of people, that's probably made it more bearable. Everyone has missed things in the lockdowns and pandemic. Like the virus, we need contact with others to thrive. I spoke to more than a few key workers who talked of isolating at works for lunch breaks or during work duties. People missed being together, as Patrick, our tube driver, points out. There is a lot of camaraderie, which is stretched now because you can't even sit next to someone. You know, before you'd have three or four people around a table taking a piss out of each other. Um, you might have people playing cards, you know, going out for a drink after or whatever. All of that stopped. Human beings work better together. We are more caring and creative. We learn more together. We are happier together. We have more empathy. We are safer together. Henry Ford was hailed a genius for creating the assembly lines in the 1900s, isolating our endeavours and narrowly focusing our talents. But from another perspective, it took him 200,000 years of evolution to do that, which shows how ingrained community actually is. Jack and Emma are teachers. The big thing about this lockdown was that all this technology, all this kind of pre-existing materials just doesn't really work. It's not, that's not what it's about human beings seem to kind of learn best from, you know, kind of interaction with each other. If children didn't need support and didn't need that dialogue, then children would learn from worksheets and as teachers we wouldn't have a job. I spoke to one teacher who was working remotely from home with no childcare. One day, unable to find any space to work in, she simply locked herself in the bathroom and taught her class from the toilet. I'm quite sure that never was a teacher more grateful for the background images software. Lockdown, isolation and the financial impacts of keeping our distance have caused incredible genuine suffering, which makes Hancock's rule-busting schoolboy shenanigans even more galling. I suspect we will be dealing with the mental health and social impacts for a very long time to come. I'll leave the last words to teacher Rachel and Luke the Postie, who you heard at the start. Yeah, they're really happy to be back. So pleased to see each other. You know, one of the children said to me on Friday, I think the best place for a child is in school. And I said, I agree. This particular child, it, it was quite, you know, quite sweet that they said it because, you know, they haven't had a good time just being at home on their own. I think especially, you know, for a lot of elderly people who were obviously locked down, couldn't see their own families for long periods of this pandemic. We were the only people they were seeing. So, you know, it was kind of nice to be that link, but also quite, um, you know, quite sad to see it and see some people, you know, sort of old people that you would deliver to day in, day out, really looking forward to you coming down their driveway, even if you, and sometimes if you didn't have anything for them, you know, you'd stop and chat anyway. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll join us next week. Goodbye. 
Key Words is recorded, written and narrated by Mark Thomas. The series producer is Susan McNicholas. The sound editor, Helen Atkinson. It is designed by Greg Matthews, PR by Kim Manning-Cooper and Christine DeLeon. Thanks for all the trade unions from branch level to national level who have supported this podcast. A full list of supporters is available on the Mark Thomas Info website. Till next week, goodbye. It's been great talking to you as well. It's great to have somebody actually listening to it. Thank you, Mark. It was a pleasure for me to... No problem. I'll speak to you soon, Mark. And just, yeah, feel free to uh, reach out if there's anything else you need to know. Okay, then. Thanks a lot, Mark. You take care.